Hello, and welcome to the Plant a Trillion Tree podcast. I'm Eva Monheim. And I'm Hal Rosner. We're both certified arborists, credentialed by the International Society of Arboriculture. The purpose of our podcast is to encourage tree planting and proper tree care for our urban forest, which includes neighborhoods, parks, and other open space. We'll also cover the importance of the already existing tree cover and the benefits. So welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us. This podcast is being recorded on January 14th, 2022. Jeffrey Ling is an International Society of Arboriculture Certified Arborist, Registered Consulting Arborist, and the Senior Consulting Arborist in the state of Indiana. He is Secretary Treasurer of the American Society of Consulting Arborists and currently serves as its co-liaison to the Council of Tree Landscape Appraisers. In Jeffrey's hometown of New Haven, Indiana, he serves as a member of the Tree Commission. For 31 years, Jeff co-owned Tree Masters Incorporated, a comprehensive arbor care company. He specialized in plant health care and woody plant pathology. Jeff also served as a testifying expert in courts throughout the Great Lakes and East Coast. Jeff's current consulting firm, ArborWise Limited, was founded in 1994. It focuses on horticultural issues, urban forestry concerns, and tree preservation projects. Welcome to the Plant a Trillion Trees podcast, Jeff. We're delighted you could be with us today. You have an amazing background. And with the large part of your work done in the urban forest, you mentioned when I talked to you in our conversation on the phone, the Miwaki method, which we, we did have um, a discussion earlier uh, I think it was last year, with the Tiny Forest Project, which is part of Miwaki. And can you explain this method to our listeners again and also tell us how you wound up getting connected with the Miwaki method? Surely. Well, thank you for uh, allowing me to have some time with you and your listeners. The Miwaki Project was founded by Akiro Miwaki, who is a professor of horticulture at Hiroshima University in Japan. And philosophically, his commitment is to trees of local Provence. Uh, The gene pools are local. And that you invest your time and effort in developing a basis. And what drove me into this research and selecting the Milwaukee Forest Method, my frustration with modern urban forestry is that trees are artificially made, they're artificially grown, they're artificially installed, and then are expected to grow on artificial man-made sites with marginal nurture. And consequently, the normal rule of thumb is that about half of all trees planted in streets and parks in America die within the first two years. And seldomly uh, do we see more than maybe 20, 25% survive generationally. So I liked what Dr. Miyawaki was saying. I was looking for a counterintuitive way of creating canopy I'm a chemist by education, so the science side and particularly the quantitative side always appeals to me as I look at scenarios. And so as we talk about carbon sequestering, 
I came to the conclusion in my research that modern urban forestry practices in America can never, ever approach carbon neutrality. That's very true. And so, so while we have great intentions, uh, you don't pay the mortgage with good intentions. And for us environmentally, who are looking at, at urban forests as a reservoir of carbon sequestration, and particularly the canopy as an alternate sourcing of uh, climate adjustment, particularly in the microenvironments, where I'm more interested in than global. I thought Milwaukee offered a unique opportunity for us with marginal carbon inputs to look at a 10-year carbon positive situation. So I was very fortunate. I live in New Haven, Indiana, which is an eastern small town bedroom community for the city of Fort Wayne. I've been on the tree commission now four years for the mayor. And I pitched this to my compatriots on the commission and the parks department. They were very excited. Uh, Carrie Tauscher, who's the urban forestry supervisor for the Indiana DNR, picked up. Uh, she and I are long-term friends and cohorts. And basically, she guaranteed us up to 2,000 bare root stocks out of the Indiana tree nursery every year for the next three years. So we prescribed a three-year project on the near east side of New Haven, Indiana, in an unused area of City Park. We have three plots of 3,000 square feet. So when the project is done in 2024, we will have 9,000 square feet of Milwaukee project in three different age groups. And then uh, the idea is that we will open that up for educational purposes, and we will use that instruction, both what we've learned and what we induce from that experience, that it can be uh, utilized by others. That's fabulous. That is really fabulous. The payback for the Milwaukee method, from what I understand, and from Dan that we interviewed from the Netherlands, he was saying that what you get in 10 years would take typically 30 or 40 years to develop if it was planted more openly. When it's planted as close as it is with the Milwaukee method, you get a better growth because all of the plants grow as one unit and they function as one unit. And being one unit, they can actually absorb that carbon that we're talking about and work rather than each plant working separately. You can do more with large numbers than with individuals. And that particular concept sung with me also. I heard that and I was like, this makes perfect sense. Well, I like the idea of using uh, local seed source trees. We know that much of the cost of traditional urban forestry in America is the cost of moving dirt. And in most urban forestry projects in America, it's difficult for volunteers to come in and work because of the heavy equipment and needed, the size of the root balls being used, things of that nature. So I like that idea. When we planted the first Milwaukee section in May of last year, 2021, we had 18 people come. 11 of them were teenagers or younger. Mm -hmm. Everything's bare root. Out of that, uh, we put about 1,800 plants in the ground, gave the other 200 away. And I went back in in an audit as we're preparing for section two. Uh, next April, May. And uh, I'm estimating that we have about 600 that have survived the summer. So again, when you look at the elemental cost, and if people go in and do the internet search on the Milwaukee Force Project, you'll see the vast majority of these, pro these projects are third world countries, Southeast Asia. And it, it is a, a situation where you have a lot of labor, but not a lot of capital. 
you have a lot of opportunity, but not a lot of resources. In India, they have people come in and hand dig everything. And so they're able to still create that. And of course, in India, the big thing they're looking at is affecting local climate change. For us, I think we maybe have a little more ethereal goals. But at the same time, if in five years we can get canopy closure, um, I mean, you know the research that has done and the difference of soil temperatures between canopy closure and, and open brown. And we'll, we'll be investigating some of that uh, on a progressive nature as these sites mature. I just wanted to say that here's the perfect opportunity for science to be right in front of anybody who wants to do a project. And that is another reason why I think this is such a fabulous opportunity and a process that once you have documented what's gone in there and you have that record and whoever wants to follow up on it, they can follow up very easily as a high school project in science, um, checking to see what kind of densities are happening, what kind of coverage using Google search, what kind of cover canopy percentage is there. I mean, there's just a whole host of things that can be accomplished and really very little effort on anybody's part when everybody's doing something. And putting it all together, you get this large piece of information science-wise that you couldn't get otherwise. Absolutely. So the state of Indiana keeps its own uh, nursery going and it can work with citizens for propagation? Yes. The Indiana DNR has, a, in the forestry division, actually has a propagation nursery. Uh, two of them, in fact. Uh, one in southern Indiana, one in northwest Indiana. And their professional staff basically seed sources millions of trees a year. Indiana has a rich and long history for managed timber forest sites that goes clear back into the early 1900s. Charles Dean was the first Indiana forester. Uh, that's a name that many people know throughout America because of his excellent work in collecting and identifying native plants. He actually started uh, the first nursery. So in Indiana, citizens can go in and basically get a thousand free trees. Wow. All bare root. All of them usually are 1.0, some are 2.0. Uh, and in nursery business, that means they've either been in the whole, the nurture nursery one or two years. Most of them are under 16 inches in height. Okay. For, for years in Fort Wayne, we used to sponsor it in conjunction with the Fort Wayne City Parks. The professional association here in, in town would foster an Arbor Day celebration, and we would give away five trees to everybody who showed up. Wow. And are those going in tree tubes then, Jeffrey? Uh, actually, they come bare root. Some of them are in plastic bags. Some of them are just wrapped and served. But, you know, we were able to give that resource out to citizens as, as much as they wanted. I see. So, you know, it's something that Indiana does. And we have a lot of private nurseries that are cultivating uh, liner stock and small specimen stock as well. But obviously, those are for fee. For some of our Midwestern people, they might be aware of Woody's Warehouse in Litson. It's a nationally recognized warehouse generating native trees in one gallon in cells, ones in five gallons, and uh, it is a for-profit operation. Uh, produces wonderful material that's all native, all for conservation work. That's like our pine lands too. It's like our pine lands when we did the interview. Oh, right. They do native collecting in New Jersey and uh, provide a large pool of uh, native plants here in, in the East. And Jeffrey just made a good point that so much of the expense 
and energy is picking up that heavy root bone, digging it and loading it and moving it and unloading it. It, it burns up resources pretty quick. Can I ask you just to expand a little bit? You had mentioned that most urban forestry projects do not meet a uh, net zero equation. Am I, am I saying that right? Yeah, uh, I think that if you look at a total calculation, when you look at both transportation production, when you look at the costs of running the bobcat to get the 30-inch root ball off the truck, when you look at all of those things and then you calculate out the depreciation of the population over time due to losses and lack of care. I mean, one of the areas that I, I growl about all the time <laughs> is, is municipalities with great intentions, civic organizations with really good desires. Yeah. Come in and they'll plant a thousand trees and 10 years later, there's less than 200 left. You're spot on, Jeff. That, that's exactly what happens. So, so uh, I'm happy to say that my good friend, Derek Bight, who's uh, superintendent of forestry here in Fort Wayne, has made two really important decisions uh, for the future of the forest in greater Fort Wayne. And one is that they're going to reduce the number of planting so that they can actually commit aftercare resources to it. And secondly, uh, we've been talking about the cultivation of canopy much earlier in the process. And uh, you may be aware of Dr. Ed Gillum's work in Florida and his whole construct that if you prune a tree properly in its first five years, you may not have to touch it again for the next 20. To snip four or five small branches not only benefits the tree organizationally, it benefits the tree physiologically, and it benefits the tree owner fiscally. Yes, you're absolutely right. Yeah, I'm really excited Derek's looked at that, and we're hoping um, that that may be a keynote to a lot of other municipalities here in the Midwest. Well, you know, we have the tree tenders here in Philadelphia and they do rarely use ball and burlap. It's all bare root. And so they have an, about a 90, I think it's 95% take on all their trees, um, but they're very diligent about aftercare. That's one of the things that we really commend PHS for because they do do aftercare and they do get the neighbors to go out there. You can't have a tree unless you commit to watering it. You can't have a tree unless you commit to taking care of it. Well, one of the municipalities in Fort Wayne who retained me to render uh, opinions on a particular project, I looked at them on their street planning and I said, give the tree to the homeowner. But if the tree dies in the first three years, you're going to build the property owner. Well, that didn't fly politically. And as you guys well know, there's a whole lot of political content to urban horticulture. You know, we plant trees to feel good. You, it's seldom possible. I've done a lot of work in private properties. I'm a licensed nurseryman as well as as an arborist. And uh, I've worked on a lot of projects where my input was requested. And, you know, the, the, the issue is, is that you can always get people motivated to invest money in planting. But when you talk to them about five-year and aftercare, uh, at five to 10-year aftercare budgets, uh, the eyes glaze over and they want to change the subject. Well, isn't that's also true um, why people are leaning towards the research that they're doing um, for aftercare. In other words, having a group of trees succeed and be successful on the street are doing so many tasks for people like shade 
energy cost reduction, et cetera, et cetera. And that trying to replace what they're doing with younger trees doesn't work because it takes a time to get established. And when you were talking about the Miwaki method, that quick establishment is critical for the larger whole, not only for the soil, but also for everything that surrounds it. And you talk about microclimate. It changes the microclimate dramatically once it starts to grow. You know, I think you're, you're right on when you're talking about the microclimate. You're talking about after tree care. Um, you're talking about small trees that people can handle. Um, these are all things that are so critical. And when you can get younger people to plant, that stays with them the rest of their life. I told somebody the other day, I said, you know, when it's all said and done in my career, I'm still just a boy who likes playing in the dirt. And that flows back to the 1950s on the farm. Well, and that's the two of us too, you know, uh, played in the soil all the time, was always planting something. And uh, you, it doesn't go out of your blood once it's in your blood. It's, it's there permanently. <laughs> Getting back to your site there, the project sounds very exciting. Did it have a prior use? I'm, I'm taking you back to your hometown where you, you did the plant. Yeah, it was mowed. Oh, okay. And, and that's one of the things I think that is so pleasing. The mayor has participated with us. He and his wife joined us for the planting in 2021 and was promised that he'll be there every year after that. Uh, the director of parks for New Haven, Indiana, Adams Township, New Haven, Indiana, was with us. Uh, and then we also have the Great American Canopy, and he joins us to dig holes and things like that. So, you know, we have that kind of ownership. But the mayor has already said, I'm convinced both of the practicality of this and the future value of this for our city. We have other sites that we wish to engage, not as an experiment, but as a reality. I think that's fabulous. So we're taking away the mower cost uh, for them to mow every two weeks uh, a bare lot. And, and one of the things the Milwaukee Project demands is a lot of tillage and soil amendments pre-planting but we're using all urban generated bio waste. So we're using wood chips generated from the tree trimming, and then we're bringing leaf mass in as soil cover and then spring soil amendment before we do our plantings. So we're taking that carbon that was a waste product and we're re-engaging that as long-term soil upgrades. Yeah, I love talking soil amendments. So can you just to, you mentioned uh, wood chips and uh, composting leaves going in as an amendment. Um, was that were the, was that pre-planting? Yeah, the soils were initially tilled two feet deep. We sit right on the western edge of Lake Maumee, which was the glacial lake that covered much of western Ohio 12 to 14, 18,000 years ago. It was an ice dam, and sometime in the 12... 10,000 year ago range, the ice dam broke, and this massive water flow went west, carving out the Wabash River Valley. I see. And that, that goes from Fort Wayne, Indiana, which is called the Summit City. We are the high point of the Wabash Erie Canal, which follows the Maumee River from Toledo and Lake Erie all the way up. And then there are specific locations in the near west side of Fort Wayne, where at less than one mile distance, it is the Continental Divide. Water on the east side all goes to Lake Erie. 
The water on the west side all goes to the Mississippi, and that's called the Glorious Gate. And for thousands of years, that was known by the Miami Indians. The capital of the Miami nation is Kikianga, which is on the, the flag of Fort Wayne, Indiana. Uh, we are Kikianga. And then as the French foyers began to penetrate the Indiana wilderness in the 1640s, 1650s, they understood that the cargo canoes could come up the Maumee, and with less than one to two miles of portage, they could head all the way to New Orleans. Wow. wow. That really gives me some context there. So some, some of that geological feature was carved 10,000 years ago when hundreds of millions of gallons of ice water flowed west from the breaking of the ice dam in Lake Maumee. Where my home sits, where I'm at right now, and where New Haven, Indiana sits, is that western edge. And actually, uh, in talking with one of the city planners, uh, a site development uh, just off the interchange of uh, US 30 and, and Interstate uh, 469, and they were drilling pylons for the building, and they hit water at about 10, 12 feet. Soil water, not they did, and they thought they had hit a water pipe. And what he looked at, he looked at me, and we were talking about. It, he just laughed. He said, "Well, that's the residual Lake Maumee. <laughs> so water, water cables here are still. But what that means for us, Hal, is that every single soil feature that is not glacial till is compacted blue Mississippi clay. So any urban project that we do, any construction that we do, any plantings that we do, so naturally. Allen County, Indiana, Fort Wayne, New Haven area is an oak hickory woodland. And only where there's glacial till do we get sugar maple, beech, sassafras, black oak, and pawpaw. We are the northern range of pawpaw. Wow, one of our favorites here, absolutely. I really am glad you brought that point up about the soil and the types of soil because most people don't know that the U.S. government has a site that you can go and see soil surveys clear across the country and see what kind of soils there are in each state and drill down to each county and to drill down into each town and so on. And that really makes a huge difference as to what you can and can't do on these sites. And you just made that very clear by the types of species that you find within these areas. And I'm sure Hal will concur, knowing his background, that we can have soil profiles down to the quarter section because of the U.S. Soil Service. But those are totally non-functional once we get into an urban context. And in most cases, in any subdivision, if we're talking about people's homes, topsoil is often scraped off and sold as a cash crop. And then subsoils from the excavation, from the grading, are just graded and compacted. Turf can survive that. Most trees cannot. Right. Right. What are some of the, the species that you used in these, the Milwaukee collections that you put together? What were some of the species? And did you use understory, shrubbery, and perennials? Did you use the, you know, the Florida ceiling? No, we did not. We are, we're going to allow nature to do that. We're emphasizing uh, three-dimensional growth in the Milwaukee mm -hmm. Project. Uh, there's always a shortfall of hardwoods in, in the Indiana nurseries. Out of the 1,800 trees we planted, only 100 were oaks, only 100 were hickories. 98 of the shagbark hickories died within the first 30 days. As understory, uh, we do have uh, gray twig dogwood. We do have filbert. 
filberts are native, wild filberts are native, and those are the two primary, uh, the red twig, the great twig dogwoods, and the filberts. Uh, tulip poplars are always popular in Indiana because it's a state tree. Uh, we got both uh, hard, uh, soft maples, both silver and rubrum, seed source, so we don't know what to expect from that, other than we know that the seed was collected from Indiana. Uh, a, few, a few basswoods uh, and uh, a fair amount of sycamore. That's wonderful. As you well know, there are certain pioneer species uh, that usually repopulate the site first. Right. And they had no hawthorns available for me, so I couldn't select hawthorns. And I just could not bring about to myself to plant cottonwood or mulberry. <laughs> <laughs> That's really interesting because um, when I worked up on a site in New York near Albany, hawthorns were the number one pioneer species. We're here in our area. It's usually pin oak, red maple. We'll have species like that that'll come in, uh, sometimes sweet gum, in old fields. Air-sown seed are always the first pioneers to get in. So here, if it's a wetter site, we see box elder. Uh, hawthorn is not seed source, but the maples, and it used to be the green ash. We would see a lot of those come in as a preliminary or as a pioneer species. And then in Indiana, particularly, birds are a wonderful uh, companion and ally in transmitting seed. We see the vectored seed coming in usually after the fact. And obviously, the bigger the seed, the slower the penetration in sight. Now, I, I'll just open the Pandora's box because clearly there's a revolution going on in the last 10 years, and that has to do with calorie pair. <laughs> Eva, you've seen some of the work I've done on LinkedIn, and you're going to see a lot more on calorie pair this year because I have a project plot. And uh, my goal is, one, to try and calculate biomass progression from this exotic invasive plant. And then secondly, to observe uh, how native species uh, react to that kind of monoculture. When I was living down and working in Alexandria, Virginia, I would come home on weekends to Philadelphia and travel the 495 corridor around Washington. And it was nothing but white in the springtime because it was nothing but one big monoculture of calorie pear. And when you opened your windows, you could smell that. I want to say Must. it has a, a musty smell to attract flies and wasps. And uh, that's the perfect plant for attracting the atypical pollinators that we think that pollinate our gardens. And it was unbelievable. And we had it here too. We had one town, I won't, it'll go unmentioned, that planted all calorie pears. And within 10 years, they all failed because of an ice storm and they had to be removed. The idea of the calorie pear, one of the professors that I work with at Penn State, he actually was one of the early developers of the calorie pear because it would have smaller fruits that it wouldn't, people wouldn't fall on it and didn't think that birds are going to carry the seed in their guano. And now we have this problem. And two, the issue is, is that we have seen a metamorphosis of calorie pear. And the original calorie pear, Bradford, that was merchandised, was an inert it was a neutral fruit. It did not pollinate. And over time, what we do know based on results is that pear has morphed into a fertile fruiting tree. The other thing I find interesting is that pear is responsible for the major increase in the growth of another exotic, and that's the uh, European starling. Oh, interesting. 
And uh, if you notice, or maybe you have, or maybe some of the listeners have, that in North America, robins are coming north earlier in the spring. And in many cities, robins no longer migrate. They're full-time oh, residents. We see that. We see that here in Philadelphia. Yeah. And in fact, where they used to migrate down in Florida area, they don't even go there anymore. Well, those are two species of birds that have basically flourished because the environment has changed for them and provided them with the winter feed that pears provide. That sounds perfectly logical. And talking about the pears, when we talked on the telephone, I love the fact that we talked about grafted trees. Do you want to give a little bit of background on that? And that could also um, encourage excess seed growth if the rootstock takes off? Well, whenever we talk about grafted uh, activities, I always think of Gene Wilder and Young Frankenstein yelling, it's alive, it's alive. Uh, I can imagine uh, nursery technicians graphing rootstock to scone, and then as they all flesh out, running through the rows of trees, waving their hands above their heads, yelling, it's alive, it's alive. <laughs> so, you know, graf grafting is something that horticulturists and, and uh, nurserymen, orchardists have been using for hundreds of years, where uh, a particular characteristic can be cloned onto acceptable rootstock. As the American nursery business, and this is not a negative, this is, this is a statement of fact, but as the move of the nursery business has been to generate trademarked species, trademarked cultivars that can be uh, merchandised at a higher premium, uh, grafting has become the way of doing that. And so uh, of the 700 plus species of crab apples that either have been or are currently being merchandised in America, nearly all of them are grafted to, to general common apple. And when people drive down the, the, the neighborhoods in the spring and they see that flowering tree at the corner of the house that's both pink and white and has multi-stems, that's the white flowers are from apple stock that has been allowed to grow up and become a tree. The pink is the original crab apple. And so, you know, we have this whole kind of Frankensteinish relationship now. And so, uh, as you and I talked, one, the nurserymen are circumspect at best. And again, I'm not being critical to the point of being negative. I'm stating this as fact. When I go into nursery meetings and I look at someone who is promoting a specific cultivar, I ask them, what is the gene Provence? Who is the parent? The male, the supplier of pollen, and who is the supplier um, of the pestilent flower? And they look at me either with a blank stare or they give me a answer that is not comprehensive. And I said, I want to know who is the father, who is the mother? What is the gene Provence of this cultivar? And they don't know. The great example of this is Autumn Blaze, which is a hybrid free manii maple, red maple. Yep. Yep. Very, very popular. And yet, if you notice that a high percentage of Jeffers Red, which is a cultivar, Autumn Blaze, or Freemanii X, whatever. And for our listeners, nomenclature within the nursery business, whenever you see the name of a tree that has an X in it, it means it's a hybrid between two similar species or more. And so Freemanii is a hybrid rubrum maple but Autumn Blaze is a hybrid silver rubrum cross. Then that is grafted onto silver maple stock, rootstock. Mm -hmm. So we have the function, 
the climate orientation of the rootstock, putting sap into a tree that may or may not be ready to, to take the sap in the spring. And then we have a seed or a genetic predetermination in the top where we don't know for sure, is that a Tennessee tree? Is that a Wisconsin tree? You know, is that from upper New York state? We don't know. And so consequently with Autumn Blaze, about 50 to 70% of those trees have frost cracks in their trunks in the spring. Oh my. They sap too early and you'll see the vertical crack in the bark on the southwest side of the tree, which is the high uh, energy side of the tree in February. That's exactly right. The other thing that may cause a crack is if it's not oriented the way it was oriented in the nursery. I would debate that. Well, that could be debated. Oh, could you may be debated. get sun skull. You may get sun skull, but you won't sun, get frost sun skull. Sun skull, definitely, definitely. So, and you get a funny, you get funny injuries from sun scald. But I've I've seen it many times. What you're talking about, the cracking on the on the bark all the way down the trunk, and not too long after the tree starts to waver. Well, one of the neat observations I have is that autumn blaze in particular can maintain full canopy with less than 50% of the sap stream. And part of that has to do with the fact that up to six inches, rubber maples are all conductive tissues. Heartwood doesn't form until they're about six inches in diameter. But here's the consequence uh, that I'm sure you'll agree with me on. I was called in to a subdivision. Instead of planting all pears, they planted all autumn blaze maples. <sighs> Concrete, three-foot-wide park strips between the curb and the sidewalk, all asphalt streets, all the trees, uh, some 40-some maple trees in the subdivision had frost cracks. And in one winter, they lost about 12 where it mechanically failed because the tree continued to grow the top on less than 50% of sapwood, but there was depreciation and desiccation of the exposed heartwood and we had a mechanical structural failure and they would snap off at about three foot off the ground. I've, I've seen it in developments around here with cherry trees that happens too. They just crack and fall over. And there, there again is another genus where nearly everything you buy in a retail nursery is grafted. And if you have a weeping cherry, it's double grafted because the trunk is different oh, than yeah. the top and the trunk is different than the roots. So you actually have two grafts. Yeah. And you know, our normal rule of thumb is, is that uh, for weeping cherries in this part of the country, particularly in Northern Indiana, where we have reasonably severe frosts and that can induce a, a, a graft failure uh, mechanically, uh, we see about 10% population depreciation on a given year. To make sure our listeners understand, and for me as well, it sounds like your thumbs down on all grafting or selectively? No, I, I enjoy eating apples as much as anybody. Um, and you will not find a, an apple cultivar that is not grafted. I mean, they're turning over cultivars uh, in commercial nurseries every five to 10 years. And so to have the economies and to generate all of these wonderful things, I think there's a reality though, the average homeowner has to understand that you know, it is not a plop and forget kind of experience, and they need to be watching that. Another one that we see here in northern Indiana that's even more savage uh, from a grafting context than, than the rubber maple is Japanese maples. And because we're on the northern edge climate-wise, really about the only one that we can be assured 
uh, is blood good, the variety blood good. And every single blood good Japanese maple in America is grafted. What is the rootstock? I don't know. But what we do know is that top is guaranteed by trademark. Just before our conversation on what you're talking about now, I had been out on a walk and I was telling you about a, a Japanese maple that I saw and the root was so obese and this scion was just really narrow and it looked so, I guess you would say Frankenstein-ish um, because it looks so out of proportion with its rootstock. But the top of the canopy, once it overflowed and you weren't looking at the rootstock, you kind of ignored it. But that, I always look at the rootstock. I always look at the graft union. I'm always looking at that. When you see the one half a tree weeping and the other half the tree with cherries standing upright or with Japanese maples, I have a client who has half a tree weeping, half the tree upright because of the graft. And I say, why is it doing that? Oh, I'll say, okay, the graft union's been compromised. We had some really cold winters and this is what happens. And Hal, you know, just to get closure on your question, I think the issue is not grafting. The issue that we have is an uneducated expectation of what modern nursery stock is and should be. That's a good answer. I just got a 30-some page paper from the Morton Arboretum, Purdue graduate student who I provided a very little assistance to in her doctoral program is now there and doing research and dealing with hybrids in the forest environment. And so she sent me a copy of her first paper and my first comment to her was, I am so happy that your analysis separates out timber trees versus non-timber trees and mm -hmm. urban trees versus wild trees because the expectations have to be different. Timber trees are a crop. We can do anything we want. It's like growing corn. It's like growing soybeans in Indiana. You know, but when we talk about native stands, when we talk about wild stands, when we talk about a tree in someone's yard, as opposed to that tree that's in a preserve, the only thing they have in common is bark and leaves. Mm -hmm. and, right. and that's part of the educational process. It's just, you know, um, you know, uh, Eva, we talked a little bit about, you know, the whole construct of sustainability. And I've gone on record, uh, much to my own chagrin and pain, as saying that urban forestry will never be sustained, but that does not negate the values and the objectives. That's a nice way to round it up because I like the fact that you have talked about the differences and we really don't think about that as a homeowner. I'm sure homeowners don't even know that there is a difference between the tree that's out in the front lawn that's grafted versus the one that's in their backyard that came up by seed. They have no idea that there's that dramatic of a difference between the two of them. That's correct. And it's not in our educational system, unless you're taking horticulture classes, to talk about it in science classes. Well, as an arborist, and I think many, many of our peers are, are reasonably sophisticated in understanding their professional responsibility to the tree owner. You know, and one of the things I often quote to my, my clients is that to everything there is a season. And then they'll come back to me and say, well, can't you save this tree? And I said, sure. My job is to practice good science. Can I keep this tree alive? Yes. Will it have the integrity it should have? Probably not. Your job is to practice good economics. Is this tree worth an extra thousand dollars to you? Or would you rather cut it down and plant for the future rather than try to preserve a shadow of the past? That's a nice way of putting it. Not far from my home, there is a crimson king maple that is contorted, 
but doing rather well. But three years and $3,000 to preserve that tree because that tree was a memorial for a son that was killed in a motorcycle accident. And there lies the value of the tree. Yes, yes. And, and it is not our place to say the tree is worth something or it's not worth something, you know, but it is our job to couch our professionalism within the understanding of the economics of each scenario. I think that's brilliant. That's a really nice way of putting it. I think it's the way many arborists are practicing today. I just published an article within one of our journals, you know, and I restated a premise that I've had for a long time that the job of a professional arborist is to care for the tree owner first. So then you get the privilege of taking care of their trees. Well, you know, I was out to see a client's tree just a couple months ago, and the tree has really serious issues. It was not taken care of from when it was young. And this couple bought the house just a few years ago. And this, is, this tree is at least 50 or 60 years old. And it needs a lot of work. And I said to them, personally, I would take it down and plant something new and start over again. And she was horrified that I said that. And of course, the other tree person who was there who's been taking care of it didn't want to take it down. But I said, I think it's a takedown. And I said, and put three new trees in someplace else on the property and you'll get just as much enjoyment, maybe more. But there comes a point where you just have to say, it has to come down for your own benefit. As, as, as a young business owner, always been enamored with trees on the golf course. I, the, the golf course is a unique ecosystem and it always intrigues me. I was at South Bend Country Club. I'm sitting in the golf cart with the new superintendent. He wants to retain me to work on a, a vision and overall management plan for all 18 holes. And of course, I'm salivating as a businessman. I'm so excited. And we pull up on the first tee and to the right of the first tee is a pin oak. 18, 19 inches in caliber. And he points to it and he looks at me with great solemnity and says, this tree will not die. Immediately, I go into diagnostic mode with Corpus Palustris, thinking about you know, the diseases and, and its proclivity to, to uh, uh, chlorosis. And, and I'm talking to him. And he held out his hand, very nice young man. Uh, we're still friends today, 30 years later. And he said, no, Jeff, you don't understand. The grandfather of my Greens Committee chairman planted this tree in 1920. <laughs> this tree will not die. Uh, and that's like the William Penn tree that's at the zoo. And you do everything to preserve it. You do everything well, to preserve it. You know, the historical tulip poplar at Monticello, they had five RCAs on site to determine if that tree could, not if that tree needed to be cut down. They knew the tree was hazardous, but they wanted five different professional opinions from people to decide how, if any way possible, could they save that historical tree? And the consensus was it should not. So one quick anecdote there is over the past three years, I've lost two chestnut oaks, Quercus prinus, to an undiagnosable death. Now, of course, there was something that killed it, but I'm talking about a tree that went into the fall looking great and didn't leaf out. I suspect it was some kind of beetle. But when I hear a story about this tree shall not die, I am starting to have this ominous feeling and, I, and I'm thinking about Dr. Roth talking about the entomology factors and how insects are being, their populations are hanging around because of these warmer weather types. 
I do think that it's a new wave of challenge to arborists for keeping trees alive that can come on real quick. Agreed. And, and again, let's be clear. They talk about this primeval forest in America. And yet in Indiana, from my research, I can tell you that the forests radically changed from 1740 to 1790. Because in a hundred years, two and a half to three million beaver were harvested and all their dams were destroyed. And hydrology completely changed and the forest environment changed. In 1920, when chestnut blight hit, the whole population of the Smoky Mountains was devastated and destroyed in 20 years. So the question we ask is for the mountain people of West Virginia, Tennessee, Virginia, and North Carolina, where the loss of the chestnut tree was not only economic, but survival. It was a major part of their food environment. Was that more catastrophic socially for them than the depression was economically? So I look at the climate question. First of all, I think we have to have academically a reactive posture. I don't think we're going to change it. We can go back to the ice cores of 300,000 years and we can see the ebb and flow in culture. So the other thing, Hal, that I would say is that in the urban environment, there are almost all man-induced negatives that can have causations. And even though you may not see signs or symptoms, there's this whole non-sighted activity. Uh, I mean, uh, nothing more than phytotothera root rot, which they don't, they don't have mushrooms, they don't do anything. And yet the vast majority of, of trees that I see that are flagging, particularly if they're in an irrigated lawn, is due to saprophytic or parasitic root rot. And I've seen a whole stand of trees just disappear because of a gas leak. Oh yeah. And and there's nothing, not there's no sign, except knowing that the gas line burst underneath. Surely, and, and and so you know one of the things when I teach, I often talk to people that the basically birth of the state of Indiana was the Battle of Fallen Timbers when Man Anthony Wayne uh, beat beat the Shawnee Nation. Um, just south of Toledo, Ohio. And that, that battleground is a national monument, and they, they are there. And uh, both sides of the conflict routinely come in and recognize those who fought and died during that battle. But why is it called the Battle of Fallen Timbers? Because several months before they engaged themselves, a cyclone went down the Maumee Valley, and the tornado tore hundreds of acres of Climax cottonwoods. And what that meant is that as the Shawnee Braves decided to move through the woodlands, they came to this open area and they had no trees to hide behind. And the American riflemen could jump up on three and four foot diameter trunks and have perspective and they picked them off one by one. Wow. But there's a historical statement. Uh, this We could talk for hours. You realize that. You have so much to offer and to talk about your, with your experience. And I, I just want to jump in real quick, Eva, just to say how Jeffrey strikes me as being incredibly well-branched himself, because in the hour that we've had with him, natural history, indigenous tribes, nursery cultivation, oh yeah, soil, and oh, arboriculture. That, that's not bad. That's five, and I could probably keep counting. Grafting. Yes. And so he totally leafed out on us and provided <laughs> enough. But we do have to ask you a question, Jeffrey. And this is our question that we ask all of our guests. What is your spirit tree? Well, um, I, I will be a bit coy in answering that. That's fine, you could be coy. 
I'm not a Druid, but I have deep affections. And um, I will say this, I worship the creator of trees, not the trees themselves. Oh, that's that's the first time we've had that answer. Beautiful, uh, right. But my, my passion, my passion is to the Baroque, microcarpa. Ah, oh, I got goosebumps. <laughs> uh, I got the privilege of actually being the scientist of record uh, for the Treaty Oak at Blackthorn Country Club in South Bend. Uh, it was 98-inch caliber Baroque. Holy smokes. And so for, they say, about 400 years, this was the meeting ground for the Potawatomi. Mm. How's it doing today? Well, they built a golf course. What? Oh, yeah. And they took it down? No, but they, the seventh uh, fairway was built around both sides of the tree, and then they realized that maybe that wasn't wise. And obviously, as I have told many of my young students, that one of the paradigms of being an arborist is that when trees fail, arborists thrive. Yeah. But arborists yeah. should always be thriving because we're trying to keep trees alive. Yeah, I've always been, uh, for 30-some years, been more committed to saving trees. That's why they used to call them as surgeons before. Well, and again, remember, during that time frame, uh, the word arborist actually is a, a German term that came up in the 1600s. But tree surgeons came because uh, back in the 1800s and early 1900s, much of the work we did was handwork, cavity work, tracing, root cutting. And so the, the term surgeon was applicable. But now we've moved to Arborist, which has a much broader and hopefully a much more scientific context. Well said. Well, thank you so much for being on our podcast. We are just thrilled that you could be with us today. Thanks so much, Jeffrey. Thank you. Have a great day. The Planet Trillion Trees podcast is edited by Andromedan Recordings in Hollywood, California. Thank mm -hmm. you.